0: All right, happy new year, everyone. So good to see you. Hope you guys had a great Christmas, great new year celebration. And you even made it to our Sunday night service in the pouring down rain. I just wanna say good job, I'm so proud of you guys. I think we get extra rewards in heaven or something. I'm from Seattle, and so people assume that I actually like this weather, and let me just clarify, I don't. You never get used to rain like this, it's terrible. But guess what, we're having church tonight, and I'm so excited. I wanna preach to you today from the subject, hovering over the waters. Hovering over the waters on New Year's Eve. I was on Instagram and I was scrolling through my feed and one of my friends posted this She said 2018 went by in the blink of an eye and then the very next post another one of my friends said 2018 was a Terrible decade and that made me laugh. I was like I was like man, that's true But I thought to myself. Oh man, all of us have had such different experiences in 2018 Man, some of us are celebrating triumphs, others of us are mourning losses, some of us are kind of working through different struggles, we're all telling different stories from 2018, and yet every single person that I've talked to has one thing in common, that there is such excitement, anticipation for what God's going to do in this new year. I love the word that Mike Lucia preached last week, that big things are coming. Big things are coming, and it's this idea that I'd actually like to build upon tonight. And so we're going to read actually in the Genesis story, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1, and uh, it'll be on the screens. Here we go. This is the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. He was hovering over the face of the deep. It's incredible to me that God's first action in all of Scripture was a creative one. Scripture tells us that he created the heavens and then he created the earth. And undoubtedly, he wants to create something beautiful and extraordinary out of our lives as well. But I want us to notice the raw material that God has to actually work with here in these verses. Notice what the Scripture says. The earth was without form and void and darkness was hovering over the face of the deep. It's a very vivid picture, and yet I think it may be an appropriate picture for how some of our lives feel at the moment. Maybe you feel like your life is without form, like it's in disarray, it's in chaos, like everything's spinning out of control. Maybe you're incessantly running around in every possible direction, unsure of how to slow down, take a breath, and actually live life in a manageable and enjoyable way. Well, I have good news for you tonight. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. Maybe you're looking at your life and you feel like there's an enormous void in your life. You just feel empty. Like every day comes and goes without intention or without purpose. Maybe you feel like you're stuck in a rut. Maybe you feel like you're just lost in the machinery of a monotonous existence. You're wondering why you're here on this earth and what to actually do about it. Well, I have good news for you too. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. You may feel like your life is covered in darkness, like you can't break free from the guilt and shame of your past mistakes. You can't find reason or motivation to keep believing, to keep hoping, to keep praying, to keep fighting. Maybe you feel like you're just absolutely under the weight of anxiety or fear or depression. Well, I have good news for you tonight too. The spirit of God is hovering over the waters. There is such anticipation, such promise in that statement. You see, whatever your current situation is, Whatever your 2018 was like, whatever raw material your life may be comprised of at the moment, the Spirit of God is hovering over your life. Hovering over your life. Wanting to take that raw material and create out of it something beautiful, something extraordinary, something magnificent, something that can actually inspire and help other people around you. The Hebrew word for hovering, interestingly, is used only two more times in the entire Old Testament. And the first time it's used in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 11, and it's translated fluttering, fluttering. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest that flutters over its young. the Lord alone guided them. And then in Jeremiah chapter 29, or 23, verse 9, it's translated shaking. It's translated shaking. My bones break within me. My heart is shaking because of the Lord and because of his holy words. You see, the reality is that that phrase, that God is hovering over your life, really entails two things. The first thing is that God is actually fluttering over you. Now, I know that's a super poetic picture, but here's what it means. It means that God's actually protecting you, that he's actually watching over you, that he's actually fighting your battles, some of which you may know nothing about. But he's watching over you as a good parent would do. He loves you. And whether you realize it or not, whether you admit it or not, man, he always has your best intentions in mind. God is fluttering over you. And yet the second thing that it means is that God is actually, he's going to shake things up a little bit. He's going to shake things up. I really believe that God wants to do something new in our lives, something great in our lives, something extraordinary. I really believe it. Come on, he wants to bring freedom to your soul, liberation to your heart, restoration to your relationships. He wants to partner with you to create something truly extraordinary. I gotta be real, I have really, really big dreams. I've already filled up 30 pages actually in my journal and that I started on January 1st, okay? So filled with dreams, with prayers, with goals, with everything. And yet, this is what I've learned in my life. God is always trying to do something bigger than we are. God is always trying to do something bigger than we are. I'll tell you the truth. You cannot outdream God. You cannot outwork God. In fact, God doesn't hold us back. We tend to hold ourselves back. We tend to hold Him back. God doesn't confine us. We confine Him with our limit of our our lack of uh, faith, courage, and love. God doesn't prevent us from becoming everything that we can be. We do that really well by ourselves. You see, the problem is not that God's intentions toward us are too small. The problem is not that God's abilities are too small or that his love is too small. The problem is that our expectations of what he can do and of what he wants to do with our lives are way, way too small. The spirit of God is hovering over the waters. It's hovering over your life. In 2017, the high fashion brand Gucci uh, hired this 24- year I know, some of you guys are laughing. I had to throw in a Gucci illustration, okay? But a 24-year-old uh, by the name of Coco Capitan, and she collab- collaborated with their creative director. And they released this campaign, and they had several of Gucci's like staple items, like shirts, bags, sweatshirts. And what they did is they, they would write handwritten slogans, and they would plaster it over the iconic Gucci logo. One of them said this, common sense is not so common. It was stuff like that, right? And yet I found one of them, and I couldn't get it out of my head. I just couldn't. In fact, it became a theme in my journal entries, even in my prayer life, and this is what the slogan said. What are we going to do with all this future? What are we going to do with all this future? (laughs) Man, I love it. I couldn't afford anything in the campaign, to be honest, but I absolutely love it. And I feel like God's asking us a similar question though tonight. What are we going to do with all this future? What are we going to do with the new year that has been given to us? What are we going to do with the reality that God is hovering over the waters and hovering over our lives? You see, if we keep reading in the Genesis story, I think we find a couple of things that we can do to respond in a way that will allow God to take the raw material of our life, whatever it may be, and turn it into something beautiful, turn it into something extraordinary. Two things. Here's the first thing. Let God's word speak to you. And the second thing, let community support you. Let God's word speak to you, and then let community support you. Let's begin with the first. Let God's word speak to you. If we keep reading in Genesis chapter 1, we get to verse 3, and it says this, that God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, this rhythm is repeated over and over again with each creative act until we arrive at verse 26, where we pick up. And then God said, Let us make man, which, by the way, is more accurately translated humankind. It's not gender exclusive, but it says this Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. You see, right away we noticed this rhythm that God said and there was. God said and there was. God said and there was. When God speaks, there is life. When God speaks, there is newness. When God speaks, there is beauty. When God speaks, there is peace. When God speaks, the universe finds its intention. When God speaks, we, humanity, find our significance. This is what the author of Hebrews was talking about in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where it says the word of God is living and active. We are transformed when God speaks. We are liberated and set free when God speaks. We find our purpose when God speaks. But I want to draw another uh, attention to another crucial aspect and component of this story. Notice what God speaks. Notice what God is actually saying here. You see, after each creative act, God says, It is good. It is good. It is good. And then of us, he says, You are made in the image of God. You are blessed. You have purpose. You are very, very good. I want you to hear me. Some of you need to understand that when God sees you, he sees something good. You may see yourself as weak, but God sees you going from strength to strength. You may see yourself as a failure, but God sees you as a son and a daughter that he loves. You may see yourself as unlovable, but God sees someone worth creating, worth loving, and worth dying for. And he proved it to us in the person of Jesus. You see, what sits in your head seeps into your heart. What sits in your head seeps into your heart. What do you think about when you think about yourself? What do you think about when you think about others around you? What do you think about when you think about God? Because whatever it is that you think about long enough will eventually become your your belief system and ultimately your reality. And that's why we need to let the word of God speak to us daily. To actually wash over us. To remind us of the truth that we are created with purpose and loved without condition. When we first started the church, I, I worked part-time at a restaurant. Shout out to Revel, the best restaurant ever. Come on, let's go. But it inspired me to become a better chef, or should I say a chef to begin with. In fact, before this experience, I, really, I lived off of bean burritos, Annie's mac and cheese, and scrambled eggs, okay? But that was the old me. This is a new year, new me. Can I hear an amen? Come on, okay? Anyway, so I went to Whole Foods, and I decided, okay, I'm gonna buy every single ingredient, every single spice that I can think of, and I'm gonna give this everything I've got. I'm going to make some gourmet tacos, sweet potato, black bean tacos. It's going to be, it's going to be epic, you know? So I went to Whole Foods and I bought chili powder and onion powder and cayenne pepper and black pepper and literally anything and everything. I was just throwing it in the cart, right? And so I get home and I make it all together and I sit down to enjoy this work of art, this masterpiece, this dinner that I had created. And I took the first bite and I was so depressed because they were the most disgusting disgusting, flavorless, bland, just terrible tacos that I've ever had in my life. I was so devastated inside and so confused. So I ended up uh, calling up one of my friends. I was just like, what did I do wrong? Like, I don't understand. I gave this everything I had, you know. And she asked me, she goes, well, did you add salt? I said, well, why would you put salt on tacos? That's so weird. And she said, you got to put salt on it, you know. Salt is actually what brings out the flavor. And then she said this, it's the key ingredient. It's the key ingredient. So many of us are missing the key ingredient to an extraordinary life. Now, don't get me wrong. We're throwing in every single ingredient that we can think of. Man, we read self-help books. We see therapists. We see life coaches. We do every single exercise class at the gym. None of which, by the way, are inherently wrong. I've done them all. But for some reason, even though we do these things, we still feel so empty inside. Even though we do these things, life still feels so flavorless. It's like what we just read in Genesis. We're trapped in this existence that's without form and void. It's because we're missing the key ingredient. The only one that can fill the void in our life. The only one that can actually bring us true purpose and meaning and significance. The only one that can bring us hope even in dark places. His name is Jesus. And incredibly, ah, he's spoken to us. And he continues to speak to us. And he wants to speak to us through his word. This book, it's absolutely changed my life. It's led me to so much happiness and peace and comfort and wisdom it's pointed me to God. It's navigated me through the most difficult and troubling and hard uh, sto- like parts of my life story. It's allowed me to know Jesus as my best friend, and it can do the same for you. But this book is often undervalued because it's often misunderstood. And so I want to just take a couple of minutes, and I'm going to do a little bit more teaching than I am preaching in this kind of next segment of the message, but I just want to kind of shed some clarity on that because I think that there are two main questions that our society has when it comes to actually approaching this book called the Bible, called Scripture. And I think the main two questions are this. Is Scripture trustworthy and is Scripture regressive, culturally speaking? So let's begin with the first one. Is Scripture trustworthy? One pastor said very transparently, he said, people who have known Scripture the best— have often represented God the worst. And if you've experienced that on behalf of Christians everywhere, I just wanna say I'm so sorry. If if you didn't know this, Christians, we Christians are, are hypocrites in transition. Like Jesus has changed our lives, but we're still trying to become more and more like him. And so this would be my advice. Don't let one bad messenger spoil God's good message. Don't let one bad messenger spoil God's good message. But there's another thing, I think, regarding the trustworthiness of Scripture. I've talked to a lot of people that say that because there are great stories and legends in this book, that it can't actually contain truth. Now, I have to admit, I read a lot, a few hours every morning and usually a couple hours every night. And there are four main literary genres in literature. You have fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and drama. Right? And each, each genre has a different structure, a different style, different subject matter, and is meant to actually be read and understood a little bit differently. And the Bible, we have a similar theme when it comes to Scripture. You see, the Bible itself, even the name, the Bible, means little books. It's a collection of sixty-six little books, and they're different types of books. When you open it up, you find a section that's poetry and wisdom, the Psalms, Son of Solomon, Proverbs, they look like, sound like, and should be read and understood like poetry. And then there are books called the Epistles, which actually means just letters, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and these are actually letters written from one person to another person or another group of people or churches. And the author, for the most part, makes his intentions clear right away, so they're relatively easy to read and apply to our lives. And then there are historical books. In the Old Testament, you have First and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, Ezra and Nehemiah, In the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the biographies of Jesus, the Gospels, and the book of Acts. Now, a lot of people attack the legitimacy of these books, but people who reject them as non-factual don't really, and I say this very kindly, don't have a very good grasp on the development of literature. And I say this to teach us to build up our confidence in the scriptures. You see, if you read a novel today, it is filled with detail and realism, Like the author can easily spend at least two pages describing the room that the protagonist is sitting on. And yet, in ancient literature, details were spare. In fact, one scholar said this that in ancient times, romances, epics, legends were high and remote, and details were only included if they drove the plot. And yet, when you read the Gospels, when you read this book, it's filled with detail, it's filled with realism. It's filled with information that would, to be honest, be completely unnecessary outside of it being evidence of the author's own uh, memory and experience. Things like the disciples caught 153 fish. Things like Jesus was actually asleep on a pillow when the disciples got stuck in the storm. You see, these little details are actually there, not for us to just kind of skim over, but to actually increase our faith. To realize, wow, the Bible's actually telling the truth. But lastly, there are books and portions of Scripture that are relatively unclear in regards to genre. you got the book of Job, you got Jonah, you even have Genesis chapter 1. And these books and portions of Scripture can be hard to interpret sometimes because their genre can be hard to identify. So the question is, okay, well, what do we do when we come up against those kind of books? What do we do? Some people say, like, well, if Jonah got swallowed by a fish, and that's in the Bible, it definitely can't be truth. But when we say stuff like that, when we believe stuff like that, we, we are, we're forgetting the message of Scripture. You see, Scripture is the story of Jesus. It's the story of Jesus. The Old Testament sets the stage for Jesus. The Gospels record the life of Jesus. And the New Testament teaches us how to live for Jesus. Scripture is the story of Jesus. It's the story of his incredible love for humankind. It's the story of his unrelenting commitment to those he loves. It's the story of how he bankrupt heaven to actually bring abundant life to, here, uh, to us on earth. It's the story of Jesus. Every single page points to him. And in scripture, we have a direct window into his heart, into his love for us. So the more we get to know God's word, the more that we're actually going to be connected to God himself. It's amazing. But Then we have that second question. Is scripture regressive, culturally speaking? In other words, what does that mean? It means, does scripture hold us back as a society? Does it keep us from moving and developing further and forwards? A lot of people believe this and they dismiss it as irrelevant, but I'd like to suggest that 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 ideology exists because people actually take scripture out of context. Let me give you just two quick examples and I'm done with the teaching portion. You guys are doing a great job, come on. Okay, Ephesians chapter six, verse five says this, slaves obey your earthly masters. Now we read that and we immediately are appalled by the Bible because we hear the word slavery and we think of the slave trade in the 18th century or the existence of human trafficking in our world today, but that's not what the Bible's talking about at all. Slavery is evil. That's not what the Bible is talking about. In first century Roman Empire, when the New Testament was written, there was almost no difference between actually a slave and an average free person. In fact, one theologian says this, he says, slaves were not distinguishable from others by race, speech, or clothing. They lived and looked like everyone else and were not segregated from the rest of the society in any way. From a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as free laborers and therefore were usually not poor. Slaves could accrue enough personal capital to actually buy themselves out. And most important, very few slaves are actually slaves for life. So when you read Ephesians 6.5 in its proper context, the way it should be read, then all of a sudden, what do you hear? Oh, we're supposed to actually work hard for our employers. We're supposed to actually give our best to them. We're supposed to honor our bosses. Here's one more example, super quick. 1 Corinthians 11.6 says this, that a woman should wear a head covering in church. Okay, Now a lot of people, we read this and we go, what is the Bible talking about? And a lot of people conclude that it's actually degrading towards women. But in first century Corinth, a head covering was a physical symbol of being married like a wedding ring is today. You see, the church in Corinth was notorious for being sexually promiscuous. Paul, the author of 1 Corinthians, was in no way degrading women at all. If anything, when taken in context, the Bible's the biggest advocate ever for women's rights. But here he's communicating, if you're married, wear your wedding ring. Be faithful to your spouse. Don't elicit sexual availability. That's the point. But the reality is that many of us, we read the Bible superficially. We skim over it and if something offends us then we close the book and that's it. But we can't do that. Because when we do that we miss out on the beauty of scripture and the life that it actually provides for us and gives us. We have to learn how to read scripture in context. Figure out what it's actually saying to us. And I'll just say this. It's actually not that hard. You don't have to go to Bible college. You don't have to have theology degrees. In fact, the, I, the easiest way to do this is actually just buy a study Bible or even download a study Bible app on your phone. And anytime you're reading Scripture and you come up against something you don't understand, something doesn't make sense, man, you open up that study Bible, you go to the footnotes, and boom. Nine times out of ten, it'll make perfect sense. Now, what do you do with that one time? The, the, the tenth time, where even in its proper context, Scripture says something that makes us feel a little uncomfortable. I love what Timothy Keller says in response to that question. He says this, if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will, you will have a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship or genuine interaction. Only if God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle as in a real friendship or marriage will you know that you've gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. An authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal God. It is the precondition for it. Man, scripture is trustworthy. The Bible calls it an anchor for our soul. Man, it is not culturally regressive. In fact, I'd say it's quite the contrary. It is the thing that, man, if we turn to it, it will lead us to Jesus. It will give us a window into his heart and his love for us. It will actually allow us to have a real and intimate and uh, and an alive relationship with God. And, man, it is the thing that will move us and propel us into the extraordinary future that God has for us. Come on, we have to let God's word speak to us daily. And here's my second point, my last point. Let community support you. Let God's word speak to you and let community support you. If we keep reading the book of Genesis, we come to Genesis chapter two and verse 18 says this. And then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Which is such an interesting phrase. I, I kind of love it because what he's essentially saying is we are perfect for each other. I'm so glad I finally found you. But it's incredible to me that God didn't just create us for a need with a need for him. He also created us with a need for each other. God didn't just create us with a need for him. He also created us with a need for each other. You see, I want you to imagine the scene. God created this perfect world. Good was its very essence. There was no fear. There was no guilt. There was no shame. There was no pain. There was no suffering. There was no sin. These things didn't even exist. The human was free to roam the earth and enjoy the beauty of creation and laugh and love in the presence, the pure and unadulterated presence of God. And yet even amidst perfection, Something was missing. Something was not, right? What? The human had no friendship, no relationship, no community. And so God invented the first human community, marriage. You see, we are created by a relational God for relationship. We're created by a relational God for relationship. My best friend lives down in Palm Springs, and I go down there Probably every other month And just visit and hang out And last time I was down there Was actually in October And we were down there And we did an escape room It was the first time I'd ever done anything like that And it was kind of fun It was super cool And we get out there We got a group of friends Together doing it And we walk outside And since it's, an Octo- it's October We see this haunted house Across the street And so we looked at each other And we're like Hey, you know what? Why not? Let's go for it. It's October, tis the season. And so we we enter into it, but I I gotta admit, I have a strategy, I have a plan this entire time, okay? I kind of weasel my way into the middle of my group of friends, okay? Six of us, and I'm right in the middle because my thought process is this. If anything gets too scary, if anything truly bad happens, it's gonna be absorbed by the shield of humans around me, aka my friends, okay? So this is my strategy, and in fact, I'm embarrassed to say it, but there was a girl in front of me, and just to clarify, I wasn't some random stranger. Like, she was a part of our group. But but there was a girl for me. I was holding the hood of her sweatshirt to make sure that I didn't have to go first. I was that guy. Forgive me. Don't judge me. This is church, people, okay? This is church. By the way, I'm sweating so much. I hope it doesn't notice. I'm like, I'm, oh, my gosh, okay? I, I, for some reason, the, the comment, don't judge me, came to my head. when I just I had to say it. Don't judge me for this. It's hot in here, okay? All right, anyway. So just picture the scene. We're in this haunted house, right? And so I'm walking around, and I'm just surrounded by my friends. Every single room that we walk into, my friends are like, ah, ah, ah! And I'm just, I'm cool, calm, and collective, man. I'm just chilling, okay? And, while grabbing all of them, actually. That was more the, the scene. And we finally get to the, the end of it, where it, like, it's kind of a cliche thing, but a guy comes around with a chainsaw, and he starts chasing you. And I knew it was coming, and it still got me. I mean, I like, I got so, I booked it, I ran in my Easy Boost, which if you know me, you know that's a big thing. I would never run in these shoes. And yet I am sprinting, screaming like a two-year-old. And the particular like haunted house, it was kind of, it was shaped like a loop. And so the end of the haunted house was also where the entrance was. And so I'm just sprinting, just booking it. And I finally, I go down like, you know, and I'm trying to catch my breath. I'm sweating like I'm sweating right now. It's so embarrassing. Okay. And, and I'm there, I'm trying to catch my breath. And I look up and I, I got to be real. I, there, there is this group of, of girls, and they're all beautiful, and they're all my age, and they're laughing at me, because <laughs> I'm running, I'm a grown man, running to my easy boosts, and screaming like a two-year-old, and, and so I, I stand up, I wipe the sweat off my forehead, like I've been doing this whole message, and I, and I say the first thing that comes to my mind, I, I say, I almost lost my cool back there, <laughs> and, and they, like, they laughed, so I was like, okay, I was still pretty lame, but I tried to play it off, okay, I tried to play it off, but the funny thing is, my plan worked. It worked. Okay, with the exception of that one moment when I tried to do everything on my own. I was surrounded by people, and so I had peace. And I thought about this story this last week, and I thought, what a beautiful picture of community. Of what community is actually in our lives for. You see, the things that should knock us down when we have community, they don't. The things that should actually destroy us or detour us, when we have community, they can't. Community is able, on our behalf, to actually absorb some of the pain that we feel, some of the suffering that we feel, some of the anxiety that we feel, so that we can actually keep on going and keep on believing and keep on trusting that God has an extraordinary future for us. But as soon as we break off, as soon as we try to do this thing by ourselves, we end up making fools of ourselves. I've said this before, but to isolate yourself is to desolate yourself. To isolate yourself is to desolate yourself. If you try to do life by yourself, if you try to do it on your own, life will obliterate you. But here's the good news. There's good news to this. If you surround yourself with people that that love you, people that have your back, people that you trust, man, you can climb any obstacle, you can fight any battle, and here's the good news, you'll even have fun doing it. Man, when you are surrounded by community. I was out to lunch with uh, a friend and a, a mentor. His name's Frank Tate. And, and I'll invite the worship team, by the way, to come up. But we were just having sushi. And we were hanging out. And he looked at me and he said, um, what do you think makes Mission Church so special? And the first thing that came to my mind was, I said, honestly, I, I know so many people that have told me, like, we were about to move. Like, we were literally about to leave the Bay Area and go somewhere else And then we discovered community. Then we discovered community. And so we talked about that for a little bit, and I even opened up. I said, to be honest, I grew up in church. Like, my dad was a pastor. Like, I did the math. I've already worked at five different churches, and yet I've never said more times in my entire life this last than I have this last year, this is how church should be. Why? Because it's a family. Because it's a tribe. Because it's a crew. Because it's a community. And he agreed with me, which made me super happy. He also added a hundred other things to the list. He said Pastor Tyler's preaching. He said the worship. He said everybody that comes early and sets up and tears down for us. He pretty much listed off everything about our church, which is a pretty cool moment. But then he said something that I will absolutely never forget. He said so many people are pointing fingers at the world, judging it for falling apart. But you guys are saying, fall apart here. Fall apart here. Can I just say, you can fall apart here. You, you can actually lay down all of your defenses. You can be at rest. You can be real. You can be you. And you can know that this is a safe place and that you are loved here. I'll get a little transparent. Last year, 2018, was the hardest year of my life. It, it, it almost crushed me. And I spent the month of December actually going through old journal entries And journaling, by the way, if you're still processing a New Year's resolution, consider journaling. Journaling has been the best thing. I've I've been journaling since I was eight years old. And it's got two huge benefits I always talk about. One, uh, it's an outlet. It allows you to process life and what's actually happening. In fact, one writer said this, that what you write out in your journal, you don't take out on your friends and family. And it's so true. But the other thing is it actually allows us to, as Tyler was saying earlier, Pastor Tyler, that we can actually remember what God has done in our lives that we can actually reflect. And so I spent the month of December actually reading through my old journals and reading through my journal entries actually in this last year, 2018. And I'm gonna get super, super transparent with you. December 31st, 2017. I found this in my journal. This is what I wrote. The new year serves as a good reminder to self-reflect, re-evaluate priorities, and set new goals. But the clock will strike midnight and the calendar will change from 2017 to 2018. And I will still be Caleb. I will still be confronted with all of the terrible and overwhelming challenges that have surfaced. I'm not trying to be depressing. The truth is, I am already overwhelmed by two thousand eighteen. I wrote that one day before two thousand eighteen even happened, and the reason I say it to you today is maybe you feel like that right now. We're six days into the new year, and maybe you feel so overwhelmed already. You feel so in over your head already. It's like what we were talking about earlier, man. Without form, void, darkness everywhere. I I know what that feels like. I've been there. But here's what I also know. God is faithful. And he's so good. Because I've never been more excited about the future in my entire life. And I've never been more in love with Jesus. You see, God, if you turn to him, if you look to him, man, he can take you. He can move you from a place of fear to a place of faith. From a place of defeat to a place of victory. Come on, I look at the two things in my life this last year that got me through the hardest season of my entire life. And you know what they were? God's word spoke to me every single day. And I had an army of people surrounding me. And I don't know what the, your 2019 is looking out from the outset, what it's looking like right now. But the spirit of God is hovering over the waters, hovering over your life. It doesn't matter what raw material your life may be comprised of at the moment. However good it looks, however bad it looks, however without form or void it may seem, because God wants to create something beautiful, something extraordinary, something magnificent in your life. As C.S. Lewis once said, man, there are far, far better things ahead than any we leave behind. So the question is, what are you going to do with all this future? Man, I pray that you would let God's word speak to you. And that you would let community support you. Would you pray with me?